weren't in awe of anyone in the fleet. We had no respect for anyone because we didn't know anyone. So we just went out and went sailing. And, and it really worked for us, I think, that first year, just being completely green to that world, just doing our own thing. And, um, and we had speed to burn. And, and really, we'd need to have shot ourselves in the foot to, to not walk away with that world championship. You do a lot of soul searching at a moment like that, and I, um, I remember <laughs> I'm getting a bit emotional, but I remember thinking at the time that I was feeling quite sorry for myself, and then a very good friend died of cancer quite unexpectedly, and I thought, fuck, I'm not dead, you know, you gotta get over this, Amish, get back up on the seat. Behind the scenes of every, you know, um, successful sports person is this incredible fear of losing um, and incredible determination to make sure that that doesn't happen and um, and with Pete and Blair you know they 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 leave nothing to chance hi everyone and welcome along to broad reach radio the yachting New Zealand podcast my name is Michael Brown, and today we chat to Hamish Wilcox, who has achieved incredible success in the sport as both a sailor and coach. He won three 470 World Titles with David Barnes in the early 1980s, was involved with four America's Cup campaigns, and even sailed in the Round the World race. Since moving into coaching, he's been to seven Olympic Games and helped his athletes win multiple World Titles including Peter Burling and Blair Chuk, who have dominated the 49er class for most of the last decade. This was the longest interview we've had so far on Broadreach Radio, but it wasn't a surprise given Hamish's background and experience, and he had so many good stories to tell. He talks about his phenomenal success as a sailor, but frustrations at never going to an Olympics as an athlete, the 470 scene in New Zealand when this country dominated the class, his transition into coaching and falling out with the New Zealand setup, being the father of two children who are both Olympians, and his return to the New Zealand team and the work he's done with Peter Burling and Blair Chuk. Unfortunately, the quality of Hamish's audio isn't the best, but I think the quality of his stories and storytelling more than make up for that. I hope you enjoy this podcast as much as I did putting it together. Hamish Wilcox, welcome to the show. Yeah, good evening, Mike. Thanks for having us along. Well, thanks for your time um, on the show, and especially for racing back from Tutukaka, uh, where I believe you've uh, just come from. What were you up to up there? Uh, well, with um, the squad with this wave camp and, um, you know, perfect conditions, just the blue, blue water coming all the way into the harbour, and, you know, you're out into decent swell, five minutes after launching. So, yeah, everything you could wish for. So when you talk about a wave camp, uh, just trying to find some waves that potentially replicate uh, Inoshima, which is where the Tokyo Olympic sailing venue is, does it feel strange with so much uncertainty around whether, you know, the Olympics will even go ahead next year? I think, I'm uh, sure. And you can't let it get to, you just got to get on with it. You know, um, everybody's in the same position of doubt and uh, you know control the controllables and I think everybody's you know gotten to that place now and we're just you know charging on as if we're 
you know, we're going to be sailing in nine months' time or 12 months' time. How much can you map things out with Pete and Blair over the next 12 months? Uh, well, yeah, there's certain um, – there's a lot of it is quite well planned through their, their Team New Zealand campaign, so yeah, they know and I'll get involved in that later on. But, yeah, we'll know pretty – uh, accurately what we're going to be doing and uh, and when we can fit in the 49er sailing and, and you know, when that America's Cup comes to an end in March it'll be one of the rare opportunities where they can focus on one thing for a while Yeah, they're certainly busy boys those ones that's for sure um, So look, I really wanted to get you on um, because you've got just so much experience in um, in the sport of sailing and, and probably so much that we could fill a couple of podcasts because there's Hamish Wilcox, the sailor, and now Hamish Wilcox, the coach. And there's even plenty of strands even within each of those. Um, but let's start with Hamish Wilcox, the sailor, because um, that's effectively where your journey started. And you became best known for your exploits in the 470. Do you remember when you first jumped in a 470 and, and what was the backstory to that? Yeah, it was... Um... It was earlier days, you know, the peak class um, was obviously a very intense period in every young sailor's, young New Zealand sailor's life, you know, learning to manage one of those beasts. And um, we had a great group of people and uh, we were sailing uh, those boats, uh, the peak classes down in Lake Rotomar, which is near uh, Lake Rotorua. And um, I can't even remember why we were down there, but there's somebody had an old 470 down there and I remember um, you know stretching out on the trapeze for the first time and taking it in turns and thinking this is pretty cool you know it's a bit like sort of eyeing up a 49er for the first time as a youngster when you're if you compare it to to uh, to today today's timeline. So you went on you won a world uh, youth world's title with Chris Dixon I think it was in Italy in, in 1979 was that in a 420 or a 470 in those days? In those days, we were in the 420. Uh, it was a really interesting scenario because in the P class, uh, just finishing up that story, it was um, at the Nationals uh, that year in 77. It was uh, Chris Dixon uh, won the event and uh, Russell Coots was second and I was third and John Cutler was fourth. And then two years later, funnily enough, the youth team was made up of me and uh, Chris Dixon in the 420 and Russell Coots in the Europe dinghy. Not a star-studded little lineup that one, that's for sure. How did that combination with Chris come about? Because um, I think Chris had already won a Youth Worlds medal the year before, and he's actually one of only two Kiwis to win three medals at a Youth Worlds. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, he teamed up with Dave Mackay, who we all know through the boat building um, and other things. And he, uh, David, had already started uh, a career in the 470. He was well underway with uh, Mark Patterson. And uh, Mark Patterson had come, he'd narrowly missed out on a medal in the 470 in, in 1976 in Montreal, capsizing on the last race at the last mark and, and falling into and slipping back into fourth with a, a different crew. I think it was, was Earl Wells, but I can't remember. But anyway, Dave Mackay was well underway and certainly launched Chris Dixon's career in Perth in the 470 at the Youth Worlds in 1978 and then uh, was too old to sail in, two, in 79. So I uh, filled his shoes and um, started my 470 career. In those days, 
the 470 was the only double-handed boat available in New Zealand. So we did our trials in the 470, and then we went over to Europe and and um, and then and then figured out how to sail the 420 when we got to the to the worlds. Cheapest. That sounds like a, a, a tough assignment. Was it difficult, sort of transferring those skills and, and working it out quickly enough to be not only competitive to win it? Uh, we really had our work cut out. Um, that's for sure. We got there a little bit early. Uh, those days, the youth teams were uh, managed and coached by Hal Bennett. There were no women. There were just three members of the team: a double-handed team comprising of me and Chris, and a single-handed boys sailor, which was Russell Coots, as I said, and, and one coach. And uh, so it was all a lot different. But um, certainly the uh, the event and the hype around the event was very similar. It was considered the you know the int- the entrance to the Olympics, and then if you succeeded at the youth, you were going to succeed. At, you know, you were going to succeed on from there. Um, we arrived early, about a, 10 days, I remember, uh, in um, Livorno, Italy, as you said, and, and we chartered a shitty old Dunga um, club boat, a 420 club boat, and uh, we sort of launched it and headed out into the into the Mediterranean Sea and, and just sort of figured it out with uh, 10 days up our sleeves, um, all sailing, sailing completely alone because there were no other teams there at that stage that Brigada uh, hadn't started. Um, and we weren't really that confident with our navigation. I remember quite clearly, actually, sailing out into the haze, the Mediterranean haze, and, and seeing this lighthouse in the distance and thinking, oh, shit, we, we should just keep going. We'll go around that lighthouse. That'll be, that'll be good fun. Of course, no coaches in those days. We were just on our own, and we're probably pretty far offshore. And uh, we sort of went around the lighthouse, and then we're coming in. There must have been a bit of a swell around the Suddenly we looked ahead and there was breaking waves right across between the lighthouse and where we were heading and so I had to quickly take the kite down and broach out of there and, and get back, unwind ourselves the way we'd come. And Later we looked at the chart and realised that was a pretty dumb idea where we were going. Oh, you still went on to win the uh, world title though, so quick learners, huh? Yeah, the big uh, obstacle in those days were the Israelis, I remember. They were incredibly fast but um, uh, very emotional. Um, and and quite uh, you know quite nervous and certainly the favourites going into that event I remember um, the ones to beat and we we ended up succeeding the winning I think out of seven out of nine races we got all these trophies I remember still seeing them around that um, but they were certainly the Israelis sort of broke about halfway through I remember there was a kind of key race we we started at the pan end and the wind shifted so far right when we tacked about. 30 seconds later, we couldn't even lay back to the line again. And uh, we were dead donkey for you know, a good part of that race, but managed to, the fickle conditions to climb our way back through and salvage a race out of it. And that, from that point on, um, the Israelis were broken and we just went on to yeah, really win quite comfortably. So how did your combination with David Barnes and the 470 come about? Um, yeah, moving on from the youth worlds, um, uh, I came back to New Zealand and decided that um, I needed to have a, um, a university education. <laughs> and um, I sort of put sailing on the back burner and, and started a course in, in commerce. And um, the sort of promise to myself and uh, was that I would you know, stop sailing and focus on that. But it was very soon after um, that I ended up meeting, bumping into Dave Barnes, um, who had recently finished sailing the Youth Worlds as a crew with um, with Murray Jones 
and uh, and it was you know kept wanting to start his 470 career as a helm. So we we made a deal and and we started sailing right away actually uh, that winter, while um, the New Zealand 470 group, if you like, the squad was off in Europe campaigning in 1980. We were back in the NZ in the winter, a bit like now, thinking back on it, um, doing our best to try to keep up with them uh, just on, off Takapuna on our own. Well, talk to me about that, the state of 470 sailing in, in New Zealand in those early 80s, because there was obviously you two, the, the Fresh Bucks, but there was also um, Chris Dixon, Dave McKay, um, Peter Evans, Joey Allen, you talked about Murray Jones, and then there was Terry and, and Peter Nicholas. Yeah, there was a huge, uh, you know, depth to the class in those days. Um, I think it's, you know, when success breeds success, and Mark, and, how, and Mark Patterson uh, did so well to almost secure a medal in 76. I think suddenly everybody thought, well, shit, if he can do it and we can beat him, you know, that we know where we are. And Murray and Andy you know, got stuck in, Murray Jones and Andy Knowles got stuck in, and uh, succeeded in beating uh, Mark Patterson in the in 1980 trials. Uh, I sailed in the 1980 trials for Moscow Olympics with Chris Dixon as a sort of warm up to our youth trials. And I remember seeing the event unfold, and and you know obviously high stakes once every four years. And it was my first taste of a, an Olympic campaign, just watching them two battle it out and seeing uh, Murray and Andy take out the, the trials and then go on and see the whole thing boycotted. Which was, uh, you know, like a real, real kick in the guts for anyone that was involved in that Olympics. Hmm. Well, I guess we'll talk about the Olympics uh, as we go through because it's been a big theme in your in your life. But um, you know, sailing programs today talk about the power of the group and working together. Was that how you approached things um, with all of those other sailors back then? Uh, not at all in the sense that you might have. I mean, there was a big group of uh, 470 sailors. You know, the depth was, was incredible. You know, down to 10, anyone could win a race. And, you know, we could see 25, 30 boats um, at the Nationals on the start. So, um, you know, really, really good depth. And bearing in mind that we were world-class when Murray and Andy had come back from winning the equivalent regatta to the Olympics. And that was Kiel Week 1980 and the Europeans and Cash Guys, Portugal won both those events. So they, you know, the class was on top of the world and people knew in the class here in New Zealand that if we could knock off those guys, you know, we were going to be as good as anyone. And as you say, lots of names, um, lots of lots of people involved. But the thing was, was just that, um, you know, that understanding that every time someone was out sailing, we knew who was out, you know, we were here, you know, parents living on the cliff tops along the bays, you know, a lot of the kids at schools with um, uh, views over the harbour, you know, you didn't let anyone sail, a, a, you know, a minute longer than than you were, you know. So this kind of this competitive nature of that group was what drove everybody along. And the learning came about naturally just from observation. So no coaches at those days. So you just, you're out and you saw, hey, shit, well, there's Chris doing this a little bit differently. There's Peter Evans trying this on, you know, coming from a, another background altogether. And, and now there's Murray Jones un, you know, understanding what he was doing and just observations and then, and then leapfrogging off each other um, in, the, in the development phase. There was, you know, three different Kiwi sailmakers all building sails at the same period, all, um, you know, all competing to, to improve their, um, their design. You know? So it was all very much the competitive group that pushed things along. 
You, t- you talked about development there because um, I read somewhere that you developed your own style of sailing, I think, which was slowly adapted by the rest of the world um, and that you learn how to make the 470 sail lower and faster, meaning less leeway and a much better VMG. So h- how did those sorts of revelations come about? Yeah, I think we did learn a lot. You've got to remember that um, I would say, you know, Murray and Andy might have started that process, you know, in terms of being able to go fast in a breeze. But I think the time we had on our own that winter, we were only able to feel what the boat wanted. We didn't have a measure. We didn't have a yardstick with another boat. Everyone else was in Europe. And so the boat always, you know, the boat always feels better when you're sailing it fast. Um, And so naturally we ended up getting the boat going faster through the water. And when the, the our competition arrived back over the summer from Europe, we noticed that we had, um, we had in fact, taken it a click further from where Murray and Andy were. We were, in fact, lower than the, um, than the New Zealand fleet and faster through the water. Do you try to keep those things secret from the rest of the group, let alone the rest of the world? Well, you did sort of, you know, there was a lot of, there was a lot of banter about, you know, who kept what where and, you know, and sail designs. At that stage, I remember Chris is, was moving to a job with with Hood Sails in, uh, in New York and, and opportunities were opening up for him to develop sails, you know, through that loft. And Earl Berry had his own sailmaking company and Dave Barnes, little one, and Dave Barnes had his own little sailmaking company. So there was opportunities and we had sort of a benchmark with uh, Mark Patterson still in the fleet using standard European equipment because remember we were down in New Zealand using our own uh, New Zealand made hull which nobody else in the world used at that stage and we were using our own New Zealand made sails and we're using our own New Zealand made foils rudder and centerboard from Dave Mackay we're using our own New Zealand made rudder box which um, Matrix Mask Murray Jones got to making in a mass produced way and um we were, but we were benchmarking that against Mark Patterson's standard Vanguard setup, which was an American hull, Ullman sails with a Z-spar mast. Uh, so even though we're diverted into some of us using needle spar masts, we were benchmarking it against what was currently the best and best of the best in Europe and North America. As much as you were sort of um, developing and testing. Um... Dave Barnes also said in in the book on the 470 class, and I quote, we were young, free, broke, and without commitment. Every month we we had was spent perfecting the boat um, or out on the water. To us, it was a lifestyle. What was, was it? Um, was it like that for you? Was it a lifestyle? Yeah, for sure. I mean, every everybody uh, had no expectations in those days about ever developing a career in sailing. It was just completely unheard of. Um, you know, the the best you could hope for might be to get a job in the shore team. Um, and the, remember, in those days, the shore team and the America's Cup and the the Volvo were real people with real skills, to, you know, building real things, and they were the only people getting paid. So you're looking um, at a uh, complete. Um, zero option of, of having a paid job unless you were able to be a sailmaker, a boat builder or uh, some other worthwhile um, trade. So we were all out there just you know, young and having fun in a, in a period of time before we were to start a real job and none of us ever expected the opportunity to continue our life in sailing.
So how do you finance your campaigns then? Well, it was a good question. I mean, we just spent all the money we had, um, and that was our budget. And, you know, every year it, there was never enough money to keep a car running in New Zealand. So if we, for me, I had to sell my car. I remember selling everything one year. We didn't have even enough money to own. You know, anything I owned was basically sold before I left on the old trade and exchange thing. And um, thanks to the Sports Foundation, we were able to keep going so that the, the real opportunity or the breakthrough came for Dave and myself was we um, we managed to win the first European regatta we ever attended, which was the 470 Worlds in 1981 in Quiberon, France. And we actually came there and, and, and won the event uh, at, our first, at our first attempt. Yeah, well, you were only two years out of the youth classes. So did that come as a surprise to you to win that one? Yeah, well, I mean, we, we felt good. You know, we felt that, hey, shit, we were beating the best in the world back here in New Zealand. There's, there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to beat, you know, that was our benchmark. We shouldn't be able to take on these foreigners. And we had no, you know, we weren't in awe of anyone in the fleet. We had no respect for anyone because we didn't know anyone. So we just went out and went sailing. And, and it really worked for us, I think, that first year, just being completely green to that world, just doing our own thing. And um, and we had speed to burn, and and really we'd need to have shot ourselves in the foot to to not walk away with that world championship. So did that change your ambitions at this point? Well, what was your main ambition, I guess? No, it did, it did, but it took a while to sink in. So what happened for me? I was hedging my bets, and I took this as a an OE. So I bought a open dated round the world flight with the intention of staying away um, and finishing my European travels um regardless of how we finished at that world championship being our last regatta in europe it was in september from memory so or august september um yeah so i took off um hitchhiking up to sweden um where i managed to find a ride uh into stockholm and arrived uh, in sweden well with about a month of um or maybe it was almost two months probably of time up my sleeve before I needed to be back in New Zealand for the summer. So I, um, you know, got a job in, um, in the boat building industry in Stockholm and, and enjoyed a month of, uh, of really fun time. Earl Berry came up and joined us and we, we both, uh, we both set that town on fire. And then I went on up to Norway and got a job building a, a half tonner for the King of Norway with a family called the Withs. Uh, that enabled us to continue to travel a little bit more. And finally, I got back and to all the fanfare, not realizing what we'd done. We were the first New Zealand team to ever win an Olympic-class world championship. And I didn't realize what a, what a big deal it was until I got back to New Zealand in uh, late October. So how did then that change things? You talked about how that was the breakthrough event. Did that? Did you see sponsorship, funding, anything that came your way or opportunities because of that? Well, what happened is the Sports Foundation had gotten itself going with a group of businessmen uh, with 50-50 with, um, funding from the government. So every dollar they raised, the government gave them a dollar. Um, I think the business roundtable was involved. I, I, you'll have to Google it, but I, I, it was the Sports Foundation. And they were able to fund uh, a bunch of, of, of top-level athletes across all sports. So Richard, so Richard Hadley was on that level. Uh, Ian Ferguson, from memory, was on that level in the canoe. Um, you had to be top three in the world 
at the pinnacle of end of your year or your calendar. So we came back and found ourselves with a sports foundation grant, which was $10,000, which is like a million dollars in today's terms. No, but it was a lot of money. It was probably like the same as a teacher's salary, uh, you know, a mid-level teacher's salary at the time. So we were suddenly um, in the money with options. Yeah, different world. Well, it was a um, different one because in that, those days, uh, crew were allowed to wear or carry an additional 15 kilograms of weight and so you wore a heavy water bottle jacket uh, tell me about that and and how hard was it to have that additional weight on your back uh, it's a funny story because you know back in those days the gyms weren't a thing and when i decided to start crewing i knew that this was a risk a big risk and i needed to find a gym and i was still at school at westlake with chris um and we, you know, we were we were taking this quite seriously. So we looked in the phone book and found there was two gyms in Auckland. One was the Clyde Green Boxing Gym, and one was Les Mills in its infancy on Victoria Street, just up from Queen Street. And we couldn't. We decided we weren't boxers, so we joined Les Mills, and um, and we went across by car each day. In those days, you could get your license when you're 15, and um, and we we started working out. And I uh, described in general terms to the to the person in the gym, the trainer, what I was trying to do, save my back from 15 kilos of leverage. And um, and he set me up with a program. And I remember within 12 months I became, they had a competition, like a, a core competition. And I became the, the number one at Les Mills gym for doing sit-ups and leg overs and putting the plank on the highest setting and, and going as fast as you can. So... I looking back, I realized that's what saved my back. I've never had back troubles, and I've been one of the few to have gotten through that period without back troubles. Are oh, you still leading the team in uh, core uh, exercises when we have our, our team core sessions, aren't you? Exactly. Nothing's changed, mate. <laughs> so um, races also often had time limits, and I, I was staggered when I read this, of four and a half hours. Um, mm. What was that like? Well, I remember the world in New Zealand, we broke the time limit, you know. We, we almost, I think, we were only 30 was Pete Evans leading that race, and we were only 30 seconds inside a time limit of four and a half hours. But for people to get an understanding, the world's in Weymouth in 83, which we won as well, they were held in Weymouth Bay. And as you know, the Olympics were in Weymouth Bay, and there was um, six or I think it was six or yeah, six course areas set up in Weymouth Bay if you took the North course as well. And in the 470 Worlds there in 83, there was one course. That was the 470 Worlds course, and we used the whole bay. So, you know, the top the top mark was up by the north and the bottom mark was down at the bottom of the fin course. You need navigation skills to get, you know, to find your way to the top mark because it was so far away. Would you have preferred to be racing, you know, the shorter and sharper races like they do today? Well, it's all different. Um, I think New Zealand took a, a fair while to adjust to the change, which happened around um, 1992 through to 1996. And it was a big change for Kiwis and Australians and Americans. All the, uh, the countries outside Europe fell behind for a long period of time. It took us a long time to adjust. Uh, you know, instead of working on boat speed and being able to go you know, 5% faster, it became all about starting and boat positioning and boat handling on those shorter courses. So the whole game changed. For better, for worse, who knows? Now you, you talked about those 1984 world champs, which came to Auckland. 
Um, and you'd won the previous year with third in 82 and obviously won in 81. Was there sort of a buzz about, you know, town given your recent success as well as others within that 470 squad? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was all it was all on. It had a similar kind of vibe to having the 49er Worlds here. And obviously we, we also, this year I mean, and we also had, you know, the uh, RSX Worlds when New Zealand was doing great. You know, there, there was... In those days, you know, Pete Montgomery was um, obviously commentating the races, and there was a huge spectator fleet. And I've got a feeling we were on. It was. If it wasn't. It wouldn't be live on TV, but there was a TV, a decent TV presence. And you know, the the thing was, you know, there's not many people from my era who don't remember that was whether you're uh, that interested in sailing or not. You would have known about it. Did you feel any additional pressure then to perform? Oh, for sure. I mean, every. Um, Every regatta was huge pressure. Um, that's why we were successful. We, you know, we wanted to win so desperately. I mean, not it, it was almost like your life depended on it because with the Sports Foundation funding, you got you had to finish top three at your pinnacle event, which was the Worlds. If you if we mortgaged ourselves, went into debt, and we didn't have we didn't have a mortgage. I'm telling the wrong thing, but we went into loans with 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 friends and bank and whatever you could in order to fund our year based on the fact we would get a, um, a sports foundation grant of 10,000 if we finished in the top three. So the feeling was very much life and death, not just, you know, in terms of wanting to win, but also in terms of just being, um, you know, financially viable to go on. And if we hadn't finished in the top three, it would, we would basically would be thrown off that funding and we would, I uh, would be spending the next two years trying to pay back 10,000 that we'd already spent. So then when you win titles or finish in the top three, is is it the feeling almost relief as opposed to euphoria? Well, it's a, I think the relief is, always comes first and um, and then and then the euphoria. Obviously, you know, the euphoria is what gets you addicted to it and wanting to go back and do it again and again. Well, as it turned out, um, you were first. Another Kiwi team was second and Kiwis were third and there were five New Zealand boats in the top 10. So, you know, what was that experience like to absolutely dominate a world championships like that? Oh, yeah, it was, I mean, it was full credit to everybody there and, you know, the whole program in terms of, you know, how much work and effort people were uh, prepared, sacrifices people were prepared to make and how deep down the fleet that was going. Um, you know, it was just a huge buzz. It was very complicated by the fact that the trials were a couple of weeks after the uh, World Championships and there wasn't, for on our side of things, there wasn't a lot of certainty about how that was going to unfold given it was so close to the World Championships. Was that the highlight of your sailing career to win that world title at home? Well, I think it was severely dampened by the fact that, you know, two weeks later we lost the trials. I mean, uh, it would it would have been had it not you know, fitted into the whole nose diving effect of losing the trials and and uh, and the opportunity to go to the Olympic Games and get a gold medal. So, what happened at those trials? Well, it's probably not an easy thing to explain. Even looking back, I mean, certainly lots of lessons learned, but 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 probably for us, uh, we weren't we didn't have the clarity ourselves, and maybe it wasn't explained, or maybe it was, but. I remember the day one of the trials, we had somebody from Yachting New Zealand, I can't even remember who it was, some official, probably the president, came down and said, you know, look, um, you know, got it at the sailors' briefing, basically said, look, whoever wins these trials, 
is going to go to the Olympic Games. Um, we always understood uh, incorrectly that they had there was some discretionary clause, which there was, but we thought that the discretionary clause we thought incorrectly would would be played out by using the three main 470 events that had just occurred, which was the nationals, the pre-worlds, and the worlds, and we'd just won all three over the previous four weeks. So we were thinking, like, okay, it wouldn't be that much pressure on us for the trials if we could just, you know, get a good place across the line. We would be, um, would be sweet, and that was completely incorrect information. So we were really not prepared right then to face up for a winner takes all trials, and and that's what it was the undoing of our of our uh, Olympic trials, I'd say, in a nutshell. How did you take the fact you didn't win that event? Yeah, when I mean, it was incredibly hard um, for me, I, I ended up um, just escaping to Europe, um, not really feeling I could stay around in New Zealand and just watch the whole thing unfold on TV. So, you know, I got a corporate job and I went into the real world. It lasted about a month and then I was like, nah, I, I can't swallow this. I'm going. So I escaped into to Europe to I don't know what at the time and um, and that was my method of trying to cope and you got to realize that nobody at the Olympics had ever beaten us in a regatta in four years. So it was, it felt like such a crime not to be able to attend those Olympic Games. And where did you finish in the trials? <laughs> we were fifth in the trials. So we were in, in the money till halfway through probably. And um, and then things, a, li- a few little things happened and um, and we we collapsed under the pressure is sort of how you'd sum it up. And Looking back, I can see that clearly now. But at the time, it was just like, you know, frustration started to occur. Um, there was always talk about holding the event in similar conditions to what we expected in Los Angeles, which was decent breeze. And for the first few days, they just charged on with the event anyway in quite light conditions and very dissimilar conditions. And we were sort of doing okay with that, but a bit frustrated, but still hanging in there in the money for a result. Um, but in the end, it was interesting that, you know, there was a – obviously, we were favourites. Chris Dixon was clearly a favourite, and uh, Murray Jones was clearly a favourite. But in the end, it was Peter Evans who was sort of coming from behind with with really nothing to lose and everything to gain, new to the class that took out the, uh, the trials. Yeah, and they went on, I think, to 14th in Los Angeles. Um, so w- what did you see – is was going to be the next days. Did you think there'd be another opportunity to go to an Olympics after this one? No, I thought I would be, you know, back to the grindstone, you know, I needed to get a escape out of New Zealand for a while. And then I came back with the idea of actually doing a law degree, um, which, you know, I looked at and didn't, didn't end up starting it. But um, yeah, I was wondering with my comments, what I'd do and, uh, having done a year of that, and I, sta- I started over, off overseas and um, ended up becoming more and more involved as a, as a sailor. Uh, initially, I had just a normal, I found just a normal job in London, and I, my intention was to save up enough money to, to catch up with my friends so financially. So I wanted to buy a car. In those days, it was a closed economy, and stay away for 18 months and then bring it back tax free and, and make a fortune. In those days, you know, you could probably make $30,000 with that transaction all going well. But, um, yeah, things changed and I got the car and I chugged away with my job and things were going well. Um, and then I got more and more 
involved in sailing. Um, opportunities turned up for me in the in the big boat scene in the One Ton Cup and the Admirals Cup, and then later on in the Sardinia Cup, um, New Zealand put its first entry into the Americas Cup, and they asked us everybody, all the New Zealanders that were at the Sardinia Cup there that year, to stay on, and and we hired we chartered a boat, Royal New Zealand Yacht Squadron chartered a boat, and we got started in the twelve meter and a 12 meter project yeah and you also did 18 foot skiffs and uh, a southern ocean league in the 89 edition of the round the world race i think so i mean just in terms of the round the world race how did that come about and what was that experience like it was very interesting i mean i um i came back with the idea that i probably wouldn't put that much on the line again um given the disappointment of the trials so I think I, you know, I got burned pretty badly by that trials. And as a result of that, I felt, you know, vulnerable to ever get that exposed and have such a shitty outcome. So I dabbled in another couple of trials. I started helming a 470, which I really enjoyed. So sort of fall, fall, falling back on the process and sort of moved again away from the big boat scene, which I, I could never really find myself enjoying it was it was it always felt like a job and um so i started humming for 70s and did two trials and ended up third and second and respectively in the 1988 trials and the 1992 trials um both times helming with mike drummond as my crew and um and really really enjoyed it they were quite short campaigns but there were lots of fun lots of intensity and um and in the same period uh you know i met this swedish Swedish girl who became a wife and <laughs> we uh you know I started to round my life out a little bit more in other areas and we bought a cruising boat and we sailed it up to Fiji with the intention of actually circumnavigating the world before um between Olympic campaigns so basically between um 88 and 92 the idea was to get around the world and back and still have enough time to do a proper Olympic campaign for the 92 Olympics things were different back then <laughs> In the the Southern Ocean League, you know, um, I guess that's halfway around the world for you, isn't it? Yeah, so after that trip to Fiji, and interestingly enough, I don't know how it happened, but Ulrika uh, got pregnant. And uh, so we came back and she was feeling a bit seasick. There was just the two of us on the boat. And I was like, this doesn't happen, Ulrika, you don't get seasick. And we called in at Russell, you know, to check in at Opera, and we went across to Russell and we were um, – we took her to the doctor, you know, um, thinking she's still feeling a bit crook. This is not right. And I remember him marching out of the surgery to me in the waiting room saying, with his hand extended, saying, congratulations, you're a father. And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to earn some money. So, uh, you know, that was the first opportunity that came my way, which was, um, as you say, after the 18-foot skiffs, uh, I was in limbo and, you know, I thought, well, you know, it's America's Cup, it's big boat sailing, it's, you know, there was no money in Olympic class sailing in those days, so let's give this a go. And when did you start um, thinking seriously about coaching? Well, you know, those days coaching weren't a thing. Coaches weren't a thing. You went to the Olympics like I did in 1992, is that you actually were called reserves or training partners. And um, effectively, you they were already those reserves and training partners were already becoming coaches. Um, so I was I was probably considered by Leslie and Jan in 1992 a um, 
a coach. But actually, you know, we sat. I sat inside. Uh, New Zealand had the TV rights, and I sat inside the TV studio doing TV commentary commentary on the Olympics. But you know, you got to look back from there and, and realize that it all happened before. You know, we did have coach votes. We had a really well run team. We had an amazing group of coaches in '92 from New Zealand, and and uh, you know, we were able to you know really turn around a performance for Leslie and Jan, where they were you know 15th or 16th of the worlds and. Um, Six, three, four weeks before the Olympics, and and turn that round to a silver medal at the Olympic Games purely from hard work and that final stretch, you know, with the right advice. You must have felt like this coaching thing was easy. <laughs> yeah, well, it's certainly. Um, I mean, they were an amazing uh, couple of sailors, as we all know. Leslie went on and skipped an America's Cup boat, and and uh, you know, and Jan and and then went on did lots of lots of incredible things. So you know, it's quality of your coaching often represents the quality of your athletes. Um, what was um, that first experience of an Olympics like? You know, is, is it, I guess, is it something that still grates you, the fact that you never competed at an Olympics? Well, Barcelona was uh, amazing because we were the centrepiece of the event, you know, that we're right in the middle of the Games Village and where's where we rigged up and all the athletes from other sports would come and and grab a Mackie D's and sit on the terrace and watch us rig up. And so we were, you know, very, for the only time I can remember after having done or been involved in seven Olympic Games, or eight if you count the one I worked for in 88 with the Japanese, um, you, you, you just, we, there will never be another Olympics for me other than that 92 one, simply because, you know, of that proximity to being the centerpiece of the games at, say, as sailors and, and being a part of that and, and also the success of the team. It was the best ever New Zealand sailing team performance. The fact that you didn't go to a, a Games does, as, a, as a sailor or as an athlete, did it, does it make you hungrier as a coach? Well, you definitely, I mean, that was really interesting what came out of Aaron's, you know, I really enjoyed listening to that. Thanks, Mike. But, you know, you do learn from your lessons. There's no doubt, you know, you become who you are because of what happened. And, um, you know, I wouldn't be where I am now if all that stuff hadn't happened. So I look back on it in two ways. You know, I'm really happy with where I am now, so I have no regrets. And, you know, that you know, maybe that made um, my kids hungrier and to make sure they got to the Olympic Games, you know. So who knows? You know, you just don't know how. You take a path on the road and, and then another, you know, path opens up and you're, you're down another road and there's no way you can ever wind the clock back to where you were. Mm. Well, another path that you took was um, to work with the Great Britain team. So I, am I right in saying the next four Olympics you were with them? Yeah, I had a dabble in the cup stuff, as I said, and I found it pretty um, frustrating, you know, just being a small cog and a big wheel. And Dave Barnes, of course, got very involved and was there was always the, you know, the thought in my mind is to go and join him in Fremantle uh, with Chris Dixon and, uh, you know, two of my old sailing buddies. But... As I said, I, my heart really and truly was in Olympic sailing, and I always still and still do to this day believe that the Olympics is the pinnacle of the of our of our uh, sports sailing, and and that's really where I wanted to to continue my efforts. And in order to do that, I you know I needed to turn down pretty not not good contracts, but pretty secure contracts in um, in, in America's Cup and other professional sailing. And 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 to stay in the Olympics, the only option was to start coaching. And so how did that um, relationship with the British team come about? 
Well, uh, looking back, I, when the Daniel, my son, came along, um, my first reaction was to get a job. And I had an offer on the table from Nippon, who, um, as you know, they were competing in the America's Cup with Chris Dixon and, and John Cutler. And it was a good offer. And I remember Kikuchi coming out to my house to uh, to make the offer. And I was telling, telling him at the time, well, look, I've got another offer from um, – from Yachting New Zealand, they want me to be their national coach. It's a blank sheet of paper, you know, I can fill it in any way I like. And this was back after the Olympics of 92. And I was really, really of two minds, you know, which way to go, knowing that turning an opportunity down in the America's Cup would, one more time would probably be the end of my my chances in that game uh, on one hand. And on the other hand, um, really feeling still quite strongly that I had so much to give in coaching and I really, and I really had the, the, the perfect opportunity and the perfect vehicle to do that with this offer from Yachting New Zealand. So it, well, I was torn completely down the middle. Um, in the end, I chose, you know, it's one of those things you wake up in the morning and you feel one way and you go to bed at night and you feel the other way. I think your morning decision is your is your heart's decision, and I went with that. And so how long did you stay with Yachting New Zealand before joining the Brits? Uh, so I was there from um, about 90, right after the Olympics in 92 through till um, – about 97. So I did a good six years. I did. I took at least five youth teams away. Uh, we grew. We grew the youth program. You know, you've got to remember. I think there's 15 people at YNZ now with five coaches. You know, in those days there was five people at Yachting New Zealand, and there was one coach. And I was. I was it covering everything from Optimist, you know, uh, right through to Olympic classes and and making programs and doing what I could for everything. And, but the most proudest thing I was of that era was growing the youth team, the whole youth involvement, um, out from sort of 10 or 12 sailors turning up at a very disorganised youth trials to 86 sailors turning up regularly to a really well-organised youth trials. And and growing the uh, the result of that was that we won the youth trials, uh, won the Nordica Cup, which is the best nation at the youth worlds um, in in uh, Lake um, in Italy, uh, sorry, in Greece. Um, so that was my one of my my truly best um, most successful moments in my life coaching wise. I guess there's nothing like wearing a whole lot of different hats um, to get some skills in lots of different areas, huh? Yeah, but it was such an intense period. You know, I'd be on the phone every night to ten or eleven o'clock at night. You know, my kids were small, and you know, I was learning to be a parent and a father and deal with a house and a mortgage and, you know, lots of responsibilities. And this job was also incredibly high pressure in order to, to meet a result, which was to, you know, to, to do well at the, in the youth arena and to carry on that with those, those youth sailors and do well at the, uh, at the uh, Olympic Games again because we all knew the correlation between successful youth programs and successful Olympic programs. So why then the change to Great Britain? Well, that, that program was funded independently by money raised from the marine industry. It was called the, the Academy Program, and it was funded by Martin Marine and, and, and uh, all those big. I mean, I won't, if I say one, I'm going to say I'm going to miss a whole lot of others. But Billy, every big player in the marine industry put some money in. Uh, the money was raised by Simon Daubney, and the Yachting New Zealand tipped in a similar amount uh, to run the whole the whole Academy Program to bring on youth sailors. Uh, I think I was exhausted. Uh, I got to the end of that five years and realised that it wasn't sustainable and political 
situation became unattainable because of various reasons, mainly because I was probably broken and uh, I wasn't able to see my way forward. Um, yeah, personality conflicts within the organization. It's very hard to work within a big organization when you're a very independent thinker. Um, I'd had enough, and um, so I resigned um, with one last regatta to do, which was taking uh, Nick Burford and Hamish Pepper and Dean Barker and a few others well, to the uh, first uh, ISAF Open World Championships. They, are, they happen every four years in Dubai. Um, so I chugged off there with my last assignment, and I, um, I, uh, I ended up meeting up with uh, Ben Ainsley and, and John Derbyshire, and I re realised right away in John Derbyshire what an amazing coach and what an amazing manager he was, and uh, and I, you know, I knew all the British sailors through my youth involvement because they were pretty much on par with the New Zealand youth sailors in terms of performance. So um, it was a pretty simple move just to say yes and sign the contract and um and i needed to move on i needed uh, a job i had a family to feed and i remember resigning from going to new zealand and, and scraping my wife off the ceiling with uh with the shock and the horror of you know having suddenly you know two weeks wages left and and no car because at those days they provided you a car as well um you know it was really the the ability to move on for me at that time was uh, came from a very welcome hand uh, Rod Davis reached out and said, you know, we can give you a job in the America's Cup if you want. We've, we've got this thing called the weather program that's starting up. Do you want, if you want to run the weather program for for Prada, you know, we'd be happy to have you. So, you know, the moment I resigned from Yoni Zone, you know, within weeks I had an opportunity to do the America's Cup, which had always been on the back burner, and an opportunity to, to work with a team that really, really wanted, um, you know, wanted wanted to have my involvement in every way possible. How did you become so skilled in weather and analysis? Did you have any formal qualifications? Uh, no, you know, you have a lot of respect when you're, you know, already a world champion. I think that helps a lot to, um, you know, to bring to the table. And and what you know, I, you know, learned through coaching is, is you know, you 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 have to have empathy. You you need to know what's appropriate in the moment to help somebody um, make the right decision. And I think um, those skills. You know, being a good sailor, being very aware um, of how to win races and the skills as a coach of being able to know what the right thing to say at the right time is to get a performance out of somebody, you know, those two skills help enormously. But really, you know, we were just working out things as we went. You know, Torben Grail was the, was the, was the tactician on the first America's Cup boat that I worked with, which was Prada. And uh, and we got on so well, not only as uh, in a in a in a work environment, also at a, in a personal level. And um, and Torben was an incredible sailor, and um, is an incredible sailor. But at that time, you know, he opened my eyes to so many things that I hadn't even started thinking about um, in terms of weather and 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 a lot of other things. And we had a meteorologist which we worked with, and. So it's kind of yeah we were in the dark and we were, we were, we worked our way forward. For me, it was just another blank sheet of paper that needed filling in. So you sort of blagged your way through it initially and um, ended up being quite good at it, huh? Well, it was interesting how important it was in those days. They worked out that you know statistically, if you could be ahead on the first cross, you know you had a 
better than 80% chance of winning the race, even if you were a little bit slower. So the emphasis on the, the first shift program, which I ran for four America's Cups, was particularly when the, you know, the version five old, you know, 74 footers was, uh, you know, quite an important part of the whole, you know, very important part of the whole campaign. I guess also on the side, you um, were still continuing to be involved as in sort of junior and youth sailing because um, your own kids were sailing, um, particularly Dan, um, who's obviously now part of the uh, NZL sailing team and the top 470 sailor with um, Paul Snow Hansen. Um, I think you were the New Zealand coach for the team that went to one of the Opti Worlds, maybe around about 2005. So what sort of Opti dad were you? Yeah, well, Dan was an incredibly gifted sailor. He was an incredibly gifted athlete. And I always tried to persuade him to do tennis or golf because he could do those things without even, you know, with his eyes shut. Um, but he was, you know, maybe the reverse psychology worked its treat. But in the end, he was, you know, he was on his knees begging for an optimist. All his mates were doing it. You know, Dad, I've got to, I've got to have one of these things, you know. Um, and right from the get-go, he, he, just, he just smashed it. In the, in the optimist and he ended up going to the world championships three times and um, Paul Sohansen was always his great rival at the nationals I think they traded traded blows for first and second uh, during that that um, three-year reign and I enjoyed three years coaching that team and it was lots of fun you know Pete Burling was involved and you know a lot of the other sailors that you know of today are you know we're all involved in those in those three years of Opti Worlds. Did you sort of push him along or did you try to let him figure a lot of it out himself uh no i never pushed at all you know i, I always had a rule you know i was quite involved with the murray space dining club and i always had a, more, a rule from the get-go that there'd be no individual coaching there'd no be none of that sort of checkbook sailing as i'd call it um going on under my under my reign so you know whenever i took a, a coaching a coach to a group down there it'd always be with five you know you'd always grab five and then you just let then feed off each other, and they just got better. Well, Dan's already been to the Olympics um, in Rio, and um, your daughter Anna also went to the Winter Olympics in free skiing. So what's it sort of been like to see your children um, become Olympians? Yeah, well, it's amazing. You know, as you, you can probably hear, you know, I have still some, you know, emotion and frustration about you know, my role, um, you know, it's been an incredible ride and I've enjoyed seven Olympic Games. But it was, it's very ironical that both my children uh, ended up going to the Olympics. It's awesome. I'm so proud of them. Um, was it a bit strange that one child was always following the summer and the other was chasing the winter? Yeah, it was, um, it was pretty hectic, you know, when you've got kids involved in the sport at that level you are so uh, as parents you are so absorbed by it as well no matter how hard you try to let them have their own reins and run their own schedule you are actually a big part of it in the background and I think the um, it just goes in a blur really because there's so much going on and at the time there was a lot of other things happening too you know I was uh, you know well and truly involved in the America's Cup and I was also completely involved in the um, in the British uh, squad. You know, I, I brought uh, a weather program to the British team and, and you know, I had a grudge to bear against the, the New Zealanders. I felt, you know, that, you know, I'd been let down 
uh, well and truly, you know, brought these youth kids along to a point where we were equal footing to the British strongest nation of the, in the world at the time and the youth in the youth in the youth era. And I, you know, I wanted to do a whole lot of stuff that I that I that I was frustrated that wasn't happening. And so when you know when we got to the Sydney Olympics and became the strongest sailing nation at that Olympics with the British team, I was pretty damn happy and, and pretty damn satisfied that I was you know making good progress with a fantastic group of yachties. And and then we went on and repeated the same thing in Athens and then again in China. Um, so for three consecutive Olympics with the British, it was you know it was a uh, it was first sailing nation at the at the Olympic Games to finish it off. And during that period, I, I got very involved in the America's Cup, and I spent I was spending a lot of time in Valencia um, as a result of that cup moving to Valencia. So there was a lot of balls in the air. Um, Daniel was progressing through the Optimus at the same time. I was available to do three Optimus Worlds as as his coach. I remember telling uh, Nick Rogers at the time um, of Athens he was the favourite to win the gold medal. But he was a team I was coaching in the 470 with Joe Glanfield. Um, saying to him, look, I'm actually, the month before the Olympics, I'm going to have to go and do the OptiWorlds. It's going to take priority. <laughs> and, and they were like, oh, how are we going to work? this out? don't worry, I've got a plan. And um, our plan was that we would, you know, sabotage our main opposition's program because we were the nice guys and they were the assholes. And we would create an event um, which didn't fit at all with their event um, one month before the Olympics. In Athens, we had a really good event coach regatta which everybody happened to attend and everybody boycotted their event and um and then we went i went away and did the opti worlds and came back and we sat you know we had you know about 10 days preparation time before the olympics and and nick and joe just couldn't believe that they were going home to do no sailing to put to rest up i said no this will be good you know this will be exactly what you need you watch everyone else they'll all do too much and they'll all fall over and they'll all just be sick of it and over it and You'll come back fresh, and you'll you'll clean hit them, and that's exactly what happened. Oh, good story. Um, you talked about your you know your feelings about New Zealand at this stage, but um, you were part of the New Zealand team for the London Olympics 2012, um, coaching Paul Snowhanson and Jason Saunders, I think, in the men's 470. So, how did you come back to be wearing a black tracksuit instead of the red, white, and blue? That's well, a good. Question an interesting answer. I, um, I I was coming to the end of my America's Cup sort of feeling. Uh, the the big boat had come along. We were in a giant multi hull, if you remember, with a massive wing mast. It's the most extreme situation you could be in. The weather program had, um, had you know basically taken a much more minor role. You know, it was all really about design, and it was back to its, the America's Cup roots. And uh, and my role was becoming obsolete, if you like, in, in a sense. And, you know, as much as I had enjoyed that Oracle campaign and Russell, you know, he took me in a, on as a sailor because during that America's Cup campaigns, I had done a lot of B-boat sailing or basically in-house sailing. And there was a there was two programs running at the same time with Oracle. One was the um, catamaran program and one was a monohull program using the old version 5 boats. So I was sailing in the afterguard of those boats and really enjoying that that aspect but um come to the end of the america's cup um right on new year's day i i was very i had become very obsessed with biking and it was my outlet and i was on my road bike and had a pretty bad crash um new year's day you know with um four weeks to go to the america's cup and um broke my collarbone broke my arm and damaged my neck and 
basically I was in pretty bad shape um, uh, looking at, you know, three weeks out to the America's Cup and feeling pretty damn sorry for myself and, and very, very ashamed of what I'd done, you know, for the team and at this particular time. So, you know, that situation went on, we, you know, I got going and I, I managed to do the Cup and, and I did a good job and everything worked out fine and we won the Cup and, and finally I'd won the America's Cup. So I'd got to the end of kind of a road there, if you like, and went back to New Zealand and they had an operation and got a, a horrible um, syndrome called brachial practice neuritis where your body post-op from the uh, – I had to have my clavicles um, plated because, of course, jumping around on the America's Cup and doing that, it was never going to heal, so it was never going to heal. And I had it plated when I got back to New Zealand and, and this neuritis set in, which basically burns your nerves out of the, the brachial plexus, and I had lost all my right arm and my shoulder girth and, it, and was advised that it would never come back. And that would be that, you know. So bikes are on trade, me, and, you know, re-evaluating my whole life, you know, a life of, uh, of, a, of an invalid um, without, a, without a right arm and a right shoulder. So you do, you do a lot of soul-searching at a moment like that. And I, um, I remember, <laughs> I'm getting a bit emotional, but I remember thinking at the time that I was feeling quite sorry for myself. And then a very good friend died. Of cancer quite unexpectedly and I thought fuck I'm not dead you know you know get over this I much get back up on the seat and then Mike Drummond rang up and said hey you know he had a boy involved in the 470 why don't you come to the 470 worlds and um why don't you I'll drive the boat you know you sit on the back and you know we'll work it out and so I started thinking and realized uh, after that moment that what do I really want in life and I think it's a often a thing like this that actually drives you back to thinking truly about what you want in life. And for me, it became clear that um, coaching was something I wanted to do still. Um, I wanted to focus much more on my family. And um, and with that in mind, I, I gave up the cup and I focused on the family, gave 100 days a year to coaching, and I found my life back in a nice balance again. Well, it's good to have you back uh, in the New Zealand setup because you've been part of it ever since. And um, pretty soon after those London Olympics, you were coaching a couple of kids with a little bit of potential by the names of Peter Burling and Blair Chook. Um, so, you know, how did that relationship come about? Well, quite unexpectedly, really. Um, you know, I came back from the London Olympics. Um, you know, we were very, very close to getting a medal. With uh, Paul and Jason, it was you know it was sort of one protest situation, one DSQ that away from a podium performance, and the boys had you know clearly demonstrated they were capable of winning a medal in the test event, or you know just before the Olympics we had a thing called sail for gold, and they could have they could have won that. They ended up third, and Pete and Blair were the opposite. They you know they they were you know coming from behind in a similar position to Paul and Jason, but. They just turned it all on and, and put the performance of their life down for that silver medal in Weymouth. And, and afterwards, you know, they obviously had given things a lot of thought and decided that um, they wanted to, to do it again and make an, launch another campaign and they wanted to change things around. And they, came, they approached me for um, the job, the role as coach, and we, I thought it through. And with the situation evolving um, with Daniel, in the 470 at that point, I realized that, you know, being a, a coach and a father is 
very, very difficult. And uh, and I was thought it all through and decided that I would you know, like to support Peter and Blair with their campaign. And I could still be in the sort of team, the New Zealand team, to keep an eye on how Dan and Paul were going to progress in the 470. What did you make of Peter and Blair in, the, in those early days? But they were, you know, I remember the meeting in a coffee shop in Morangi Bay. They were incredibly clear about what they wanted. Um, you know, I was impressed from the start that they knew exactly what they wanted. Uh, they knew exactly how they were going to get it. And, um, you know, obviously as a group, we just progressed from there. So what did they need in those early days to sort of become the best in the world? Well, uh I mean, it's not one thing, you know. I remember when um, they debriefed Team New Zealand on the on their absolute um, amazing regatta in San, you know, when they uh, won the event in San Diego, the America's Cup came back to New Zealand. They debriefed that event, and and it came out that there was a hundred things that contributed to the success of that campaign. And if you had to look back and you know and try to prioritize what was so special about uh, that four years with Pete and Blair and myself. It, you know, there was probably a hundred things that were very, you know, very much lined up to uh, create that, you know, that amazing successful period. Incredibly successful. You know, you've won virtually every regatta in that four-year cycle. There was just one uh, pre-Olympic one which you guys didn't win, and that really didn't matter too much anyway. So, what was it like to be a part of, you know, a team that was just dominating like that? Oh, it was an amazing journey. I mean, I think the four, the three of us were going to, you know, along with Dave Slyfield, uh, um, you know, who helps us with our planning and stuff, I think we're, we're always going to look back uh, at that moment and that era and that time as being, you know, one of the most special periods uh, of our lives. And I think, um, you know, that same sort of feeling for me is looking back on that era that me and Dave Barnes sailed in between 80 and 84. It was you know, we, we also had a, enjoyed an incredible period of success and, you know, you, things just line up and, and that, and at the time you, you know they're special, but it's not until afterwards that you realize just how special they are. What was the biggest or some of the biggest challenges in that cycle? Well, I think it was all a challenge. You know, there's an incredible intensity about Peter and Blair that, uh, only a very few people are aware of, you know, they, they go so hard and so fast at so many things at the same time that, you know, and I, you know, have a reputation amongst my family and friends of being someone who likes to fit a lot of things into the day and, you know, try to do too many things and a little bit over ambitious about, you know, what I want to achieve. But honestly, you know, they bring the whole thing to another level. So, you know, probably, yeah, the intensity, um, and, and the exhaustion of, you know, periods of time away from, you know, you know, away with them on tour and then coming back and realizing just, uh, you know, just how tired I am and how, how I needed to, <laughs> to rest and recover watching them go off and do another event, you know, in another class, remembering that they did the moth worlds very successfully. They did the A class worlds very successfully. And, um, you know, they were sailing to Fiji in a big boat. They did the Sydney Hobart really well and, you know, they were, you know, getting themselves signed up into the America's Cup as well. So, you know, I mean, those guys run 100 miles an hour. Do you feel like other crews, uh, 49er crews, were intimidated by Pete and Blair because of the success and the aura with them? 
Yeah, that's for sure. You know, it's a little bit like Ben Ainsley's, you know, total domination of the Finn class. You know, it became very, very hard for other other competitors to beat him because of what he did. And it was an approach that we we felt uh, represented us very well. And so we went out and um, and that was our goal was to basically never um, be compromised on performance and always be able to put our best foot forward at every every event, give ourselves the chance to win it both physically, mentally, and in, prep, in terms of preparation. So going into sort of Rio, did you feel like maybe the biggest competition might be Pete and Blair themselves, you know, if they trip themselves up as opposed to any rival crew? I think the pressure um, we had put on ourselves throughout the whole four years, you know, led up to that big event. And there was, in my mind, there was never a moment um, where I doubted they weren't going to be able to step up and 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 win that Olympic Games. It was always going to be, um, you know, who was going to get second. Well, that might be a bit of a guess, you know, but really, um, in my mind anyway, it was it was no surprise at all that they won by so much. Oh, yeah, by so much. They won by the biggest winning margin, I think, in any class in, in about 50 years. So, um, you know, what, was that the culmination of those four years? Was it sort of everything that came together at once for an almost perfect regatta? Well, you've got to realise the Olympic Games is all mostly about um, being able to put, you know, your best result down. Most people, you know, and that was always our goal. We always talked about putting our best performance down and being proud to do that. And who cares where we get? We always knew that our best result down was going to, we we're going to clean hit the event because we'd clean hit the, all the other events when we'd put our best foot, you know, our best performance down. So it was a really simple thing in our minds. Um, but you've got to realise that everybody else, well, not everybody, but there's a hell of a high percentage of people at the Olympic Games who can never perform at their best because of the event. And that's certainly what happened in Sydney, that there was a subpar performance by, by the rest of the fleet. To, to Pete and Blair, I've, I've obviously took a couple of years off to do other things, you know, like the America's Cup um, Ocean Race. Did you think they would come back to the 49er and, and try to defend their Olympic title for the uh, Tokyo cycle? No, no. I was. Pro I mean, we 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 hadn't banged on it ourselves. We, you know, we we. I've I've had a lifetime dream of sailing around the world in my own boat boat with with Eureka, and and we um, we realised that dream in 2014 by by purchasing the boat that we knew could do it um, right at the Santander Worlds and, in in, you know, with a few days before the first race, you know, I brought the boat over the phone and toasted the whole occasion with a glass of red wine and, and with the boys and Peter and Blair. And it was always fun part of the campaign talking about, you know, you know, being distracted by, you know, getting, getting Adamite ready for that voyage around. And, and we, we rented our house out, you know, and, and, preparation for that voyage six months before the Olympics and, and um, you know, we went on tour with the boys and, and had the house rented out and it was three weeks after we got back from the Olympics we set sail for um, you know we set sail on our voyage of a lifetime and the boys yeah I never really expected what they were going to I knew of course they were involved in the cup and no one really you know guessed no one could have guessed how well that was going to go and um, we were in Tonga at the time when they won the America's Cup and, and it was the, you know I was just so proud of them so they come back um, and say, hey, Hamish, we're, uh, we want to go to Tokyo uh, Olympics. 
um, did you have any reservations about their ability to get back to the front of the pack again? No. I mean, yeah, just the sheer uh, statement that we want to come back and do the 49er told me that they wanted to come back and win another gold medal in the 49er. They, there's nothing that those guys ever do is um, is to participate. It's always to win. So if they think, if they figured, in my mind, if they figured they were you know, able to fit in uh, a 49er campaign um, and successfully defend their gold medal, I knew they could. Did it happen as quickly as you thought it would, though? Because, um, you know, it wasn't that long and they were winning the European title, then the, what was it, the Olympic test event in, um, in Ishima, then, of course, the 49er Worlds in Auckland at the end of last year and then in Melbourne the start of this year. So it happened pretty quickly, didn't it? It was interesting because I did some calculations um, based on, you know, days sailing and races compete, completed, and it was pretty funny how accurate they were, you know. I, you know, we we looked at them and we reevaluated them, and we knew, you know, that if we got this many days on the water with this many races and this many days training, we should be here then, and we should be there then, and and it was, we were pretty damn confident that we should be able to win a a regatta by the Europeans, and it turned out like that, and then we should be able to, you know, comfortably be successful at the test event. So they were our target events, and it all unfolded pretty much um, on, on cue. I think that's the thing with Pete and Blair, isn't it? They come across as, you know, fun-loving, sort of free guys, pretty easy, um, but they're very methodical behind the scenes, aren't they? Absolutely. You know, they don't leave anything to chance. So I remember, you know, working with the likes of Ben Ainsley, who's another, you know, sailing genius, Sailing freak or whatever you want to call him, one of those, you know, one of those that that um, does extraordinary things. And 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 if he thought, you know, the opposition, Robert Scheid or whoever was doing X amount to be successful, Ben would do twice as much. Um, and I think behind the scenes of every, you know, um, successful sports person is this incredible fear of losing um, and incredible determination to make sure that that doesn't happen. And um, and with Pete and Blair, you know, they, they they leave nothing to chance. So what's been your coaching style with them? Um, initially, and it's changed and evolved, you know, you don't, you never stay the same. And if we're not all learning, then we're, you know, we're not going forward. And if we're not going forward, we're, we're going to lose. So it's always been that, you know, for, for all of us, that drive to keep learning. And obviously I've had to adapt. You know, I, I started off, you know, pretty new to the 49er. I did a short 49er campaign with Dave Mackay back in 96, but you know, it was my last, you know, hurrah in the Olympic classes, um, sailing the Olympic classes. I didn't know anything really about the 49er. So, that you know, the first steps for me in coaching that boat was to get, you know, Peter and Bear to, to explain, you know, to tell me how, how do you win? How do you, how do you guys, you know, win in every different condition? And, and that became the basis of our, we always came back to that, you know, that we came to the basis of that four-year campaign is knowing clearly how to win in every every type of day and every type of condition and every type of race environment. Well, it sounds like there's a book in there, Hamish. <laughs> uh, that would be telling. <laughs> so, look, you know, we've talked about the fact that there's uncertainty 
um, in still these next 12 months, but we just have to assume that it's um, it's going ahead, uh, the Tokyo Games. But, you know, where, does, where do you see yourself um, beyond Tokyo? Do you, is it still in the coaching realm? Yeah, well, like I said, I, I think, you know, one of the things that's evolved for me is uh, over the years, particularly since that injury, is, um, you know, I had a, a miraculous recovery. You know, nobody knows to this day why I recovered. You know, it shouldn't have happened. And I think, you know, I look now very much more at a, at a life of balance. And um, and I think everybody who knows me knows that. And, you know, I, I want to be around for kids. I want to be around for grandkids. One day, heaven forbid, God, who wants to be a granddad, really? The name just shocks me. I feel still feel like I'm 16 years old. But, but, but really... Um, uh, you know, looking forward for me, it's 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 some some kind of balance between a lot of different things that I want to I still want to do, and one of them is cruising, and uh, it's my happy place, out on the boat, sitting in the cockpit, you know, with a bunch of like-minded people, and and doing you know really cool things by the day, and, and enjoying some really great company in the evening, and and it's it's really hard for me to beat it with uh, any other you know any other you know the option in my life, so that's going to be a part of it. For sure, there's going to be another part where I feel I've still got more to give in the coaching world, and I want to give that. And I haven't really sorted out how that might be, but you know, I'm talking with the possibility of doing, you know, like you say, I've written a book, and I don't know whether I should, how I should let that information out to the world. And I, you know, there could be this webinar thing, you know, which is how people do things these days. It seems to be um, books are old school, and um, you know, I'm looking at different options. Yeah, well, you certainly got um, plenty of experience and expertise to fall back on. And uh, as we've sort of discovered or extrapolated over the last sort of hour and a quarter or so. So it's been um, a really fascinating interview, actually, with someone I've thoroughly enjoyed. But I can't let you go without um, you telling us about your worst wipeout ever. <laughs> I was thinking about this, you know. Obviously, you've given us some prep, which is lucky because I don't know if I, well, I probably would have come up with this one anyway. I reckon. I mean, it's um, it's in the Southern Ocean. Um, you know, we're on those old eighty-foot, you know, you know, submarines which tried to plane at times at twenty-five knots. You know, you thought, wow, this is going good. You know, on some waves, they were pigs. You know, nothing at all like modern-day boats. And um, you know, you've got to remember in those days, uh, you know, there was there was a I think there were 16 of us in the crew and, you know, it took a month to get to, you know, South America and um, it was all very different. But one of the things that is the same was incredibly dangerous and I was enlisted, um, paid in advance. Um, Arika was eight months pregnant, so I had a, an air ticket in my hand back from Punta del Este in Uruguay and I had the money up front and I was helming one of these boats without a lot more experience than dinghy sailing. But what they did realize in the Southern Ocean coming to New Zealand was that dinghy sailors were the only people that actually could keep the boat under them when it was dark and, you know, with a lag in the wind instruments and they needed to recruit. So they they, uh, they recruited me. And as the kite goes up, the spinnaker goes up and it was, you know, the wind had just dropped to 35 knots and, you know, you've got wire sheets and everything thrashing around on these big drum winches and, You've got to send somebody up the mast to put the crane on, the quick release, to take the load off the halyard. So, the, 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 you know, the bowman goes up the mast in these conditions. You've got to keep the boat under under you or you're going to kill him. 
and then the mailman goes out to the end of the pole to put a martin breaker on a quick release on the sheet because if you see an iceberg you've got a you know we're deep south you know there's no iceberg gates at this stage and there's plenty around you've got to find a way of ditching the kite so you could you've got a martin breaker on the guy and you've got a martin breaker uh, crane on the on the halyard and it's all ready to go and but during that process you've got to steer the boat under you and if you mess it up you're going to kill somebody anyway the guy came down and we're charging along in the southern ocean these huge huge waves and it's you know, blowing blowing anyway short short story long um the navigator came up and said look you've got to steer you know you've got to make 10 degrees more it's not just about keeping the boat under you well you've got to take the spinnaker down because you're you're steering us at antarctica and we got to hit to cape horn so you know i tried and I, I think i got you know i wasn't comfortable and i was saying to the watch captain at the time i think we just got to get rid of the kite anyway like the watch captain came over and stood on the other wheel and said no we've got this we've got this but we lost it and we just lay the boat over and everybody down below was just having their breakfast and, and everything everybody and everything ended up you know on the leeward side the mast was in the water the you know, the wire sheets were thrashing around and people were, you know, waist deep in water pulling on their harness lines to find, you know, where the bang is to let it go. And it was, it was horrendous. But I remember that somebody had told me that you've got to, in this situation, if you lay the boat over, you've got to be prepared for it to come back up again. And eventually it will, you know, there'll be a big enough wave that'll blanket the wind enough that you'll end up, you know, coming upright and then you'll go into a huge jibe and then you'll put the kite through the scent, you know, through the through the four triangle. You have the boom on the backstays, and you'll never come up. So I, luckily, this flashed through my mind, and I managed to get the boat heading downwind again, and salvaged the Chinese jibe, and we got the thing back under control. But it was definitely the biggest wipeout of my life. Did you ever get to helm the boat again? <laughs> Ah, uh, good question. No, I think we, oh, yeah, we, that was all I could do. So helming the boat was what I did. And, you know, if I wasn't helming the boat, I was downstairs in the, in the heated wet weather gear room, um, huddling over the diesel heater, warming up uh, the hands and feet. Good story to end on. Well, I look forward to um, sharing another glass of red wine with you at some stage and, and perhaps uh, some few more stories from your your experiences so um look thanks so much for taking the time to speaking to us today it's been a really fascinating insight yeah thanks mike i really enjoyed it too and uh, cheers to everyone well that's it for another episode of Broadreach radio thanks for tuning in let us know what you think by emailing michael b at yachtingnz.org.nz or you can also write in telling us your worst wipeout ever in the meantime catch you next friday